0: It's hard to believe we are in week nine of our Genesis series, five more to go. So far, we have covered stories like creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, and a mysterious guy by the name of Melchizedek. Uh, I don't know about you, but I sure had fun learning about God's faithfulness through that strange character named Melchizedek. I got to wrestle with him on a plane twice, once for the devotional Uh, once in prep for that sermon last week. This week, we'll be looking at the story of Abraham and Isaac, specifically where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. The story is found in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to invite you to look the story up in your Bible uh, or your Bible app. When we get there, it will be on the screen as well. Um, While you're finding it, I want to share the roadmap with you for this morning because it's going to take a little while for us to hop into that, uh, that story. We're actually going to get through what would be like my first two points before we even land into the story. So I think it's helpful for us to know where we're headed, especially for all of you type A folks that like to know that I have a plan. There is a plan. We're, we're going to go through something together. My wife situates in that. Yeah, she re- resembles that remark. Um, so here are the four things. We're, we're going to talk about God's promise. Uh, specifically God's promises to Abraham. Uh, We're gonna talk about Abraham's faith regarding those promises, uh, how Jesus is foreshadowed in this story, uh, and how our faith is in God's promises as well and what that looks like. So we're gonna look at God's promises, Abraham's faith, Jesus being foreshadowed here, and our faith. So far in Genesis There have been two big passages, two central passages of God's promise to Abraham. And the first one can be found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Although we've read it together quite a bit in this series, I want it to be right in the forefront of our minds. So we're going to read it again together to make sure it's right there and accessible to us. This is what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, because of some other time markers that we get throughout the Genesis story, uh, most scholars speculate that Abraham was somewhere around 75 years old or so when God makes this promise to him in Genesis 12. And then, the narrator shifts his focus and he shifts from Abraham um, and the promises in Genesis 12 to Abraham and his cousin named Lot in chapters 13 and 14. And once we arrive in Genesis 15, right after good old Melchizedek, uh, God speaks with then Abram, promising Abram that he is his shield and his great reward. That's, if you want to read it, and that's, that's in the first three or four verses of chapter 15. So God promises Abram that he is his shield and his great reward. And Abram pushes back at God at this. He's getting a little frustrated. He's getting a little feisty. And he basically says, this is a paraphrase. So this is, this is kind of what Abram says to God. How can I believe you since I'm still without the land that you've promised me? And I'm still without a child. Fun fact. It's pretty difficult to have a nation if you don't have any children. Uh, That's a prerequisite. You have to have some kids in order to be a father to many nations. You have to have some land for your nation to live. And he's going, look, God, I'm having a hard time believing that you're my shield and you're my sheer reward when I've been waiting. Uh, And right immediately following this chapter, what we get is that Abraham is 86 when his son Ishmael, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when his son Ishmael is born, put a pin there, we'll come back to that. Um, and so Abraham's probably about 85 or so. So this is about 10 years, anywhere from 10 to 15 years that Abram is waiting on God to deliver his promise. And he's getting a little feisty and frustrated. I don't know about you, but when I think of being patient for 10 years, and this is the first that we read of Abraham's frustration. It's kind of awe inspiring. I've been flying here lately. Any of you all been in a plane lately? The deboarding process is horrific. It is enough to make me anxious and antsy. 30 minutes stuffed in a plane trying to get off of it makes me frustrated. Tulsa traffic at 5 o'clock. You know, every once in a while, the city reminds me it's a city. And it's at 5 o'clock when I'm late coming to the church, always. And I sit in traffic for 20 minutes. I'm frustrated, I'm anxious. I'm saying some things to God sometimes about my frustration, and we get 10 years where Abraham says nothing in his patience. It's pretty awe-inspiring to me, but Abram is a little frustrated at this point going, God, I've been waiting for 10 to 15 years for you to make good on this promise. I'm kind of having some doubts. I'm kind of frustrated. I'm not seeing enough fruit for this type of promise. And what I love is the grace that God shows Abram in this moment. He doesn't push back. He doesn't get fiery. He doesn't get feisty with Abram, he enters into a very severe covenant with Abram, a covenant that would have been very familiar to him, something he would have seen walked out many times. So he asks Abram to go get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. All of them but the birds, he tells Abram, to cut them in half and to put them on two different sides of one another, facing the opposites, and that there would be an aisleway created in it. And he instructs Abram, Keep all the birds of prey away. So all of the the different types of animals that are going to want to eat the carcasses now, you have to keep them away. So Abram, at say 85, 86 years old, have this image in your mind, chasing away stray animals and birds for hours. This poor guy's exhausted. And we find that he falls into a deep sleep. In case you're wondering about this weird ritual of cutting these animals in half, uh, scholar John Goldenay comments on that ritual saying this, the preparations presuppose the making of a commitment between two parties can involve the tearing apart of an animal. And this is the important part. It implies an enacted prayer, if I do not keep my commitment to this path, may I be torn apart like this animal. And one of the things that I find fascinating about God in this type of story, uh, or in this ritual, is this ritual was meant for both parties. Okay, Abraham should have taken the journey down the carcasses as well. But when we read here in a second, we find that it's just God. It's just God that goes and enacts this covenant on himself. So here's what happens in Genesis 15, 17 to 19. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt, which is like the Nile River, just so you know, to the great river of the Euphrates. What I find fascinating about this is that God enacts this covenant on his own. So he doesn't ask for Abram's help. He's not holding Abram accountable to anything in this covenant. What, a, what God is basically saying to Abram is on me, all of the responsibility of walking this out falls. Abram, I know you're frustrated. I know you've been waiting for a long time for me to enact this promise I gave you in Genesis 12. Here's the deal. You can tear me literally in two if I don't make good on this promise. Fun fact, you can't tear God in two. That's not going to work. Uh, So because of that, you can take to the bank, Abram, that I will be faithful. And as we know, God was faithful in his promise to Abram. Abram has a son. However, before he gets there, he has a bit of a false start. And we find this in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, He gets impatient right after this ritual experience. Sarah is getting a bit depressed, she hasn't had children yet, so she comes to Abram and says, look, take my maidservant Hagar and have a son. It looked like it took a whole lot of convincing for Abraham. He put up a big fight uh, to not have this extra wife. And has a son by the name of Ishmael. Nevertheless, despite Abraham kind of paving his own course, God is faithful, and he has a son named Isaac. Have you found Genesis 22? I've given you about half of my sermon to find it. I hope you found it. Uh, Here's what verses 1 to 5 say. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I'm going to fill in some gaps so that we don't read the whole chapter. So I'm going to summarize the next few verses and then we'll jump back into the text. So in obedience, Abraham takes wood, places it onto his son, Isaac. He takes a knife and a torch and they walk up the mountain together. Isaac looks around, right? He's an observant child and goes, "Uh, dad, I don't see a lamb. Where's the lamb at? And Abraham replies to him, Isaac, the Lord will provide a lamb. God himself will supply the lamb. They get to the top and Abraham binds Isaac and places him on the altar and draws a knife to sacrifice him. One quick note there. There had to have been a lot of trust, I think, on Isaac's part. So imagine thinking that you are, I don't know, 99 years old or so, trying to tie up a 12-year-old boy. I wonder how Abraham got Isaac bound, actually. And so it makes me wonder and ask some questions about Isaac's faith. In any case, before Abraham kills Isaac, an angel calls out from heaven saying, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Here's what verses 15 to 18 say. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, you know, because there's no one greater to swear by, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Let's talk for a second about the elephant in the room. Let's address that. If, are there any parents in here? Can you imagine? Can you even imagine being instructed to tie up your son, put him on an altar, and to sacrifice him? Right? Can you imagine the poor therapy that Isaac is going to need to recover from this moment? I cannot. I cannot. Imagine. Now, this does not explain it away, but most pastors and scholars here will talk about this practice from the ancient Near East, which was very commonplace, which was to sacrifice a child to the gods, to appease them in some way, to either make them happy, to pacify their anger. This was common practice. Unfortunately, it was so common, in fact, that Israel is charged with this crime in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 19 and 32, for those that are curious, that Israel's participating in these types of child sacrifice ceremonies, not to Yahweh, but to other gods. So there's a theme. This wouldn't have been crazy and off the wall for Abraham to hear such a request. What I find, though, is more important in this scenario is that it appears, at least, that Abraham doesn't really expect to sacrifice Isaac. Or he has so much faith in what God is able to do that he expects that God will raise him back to life in in some way, shape, or form. Let's talk a couple of minutes about Abraham's faith in God. And I think it's, it's super important for us to lean into that because Abraham becomes a central figure in what does it mean to have faith. His name gets put into the Hall of Faith, Uh, the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul builds his central argument in Romans in chapters Romans 4 and 5 around Abraham's faith. What does it mean to have saving faith? So it gets really important. So we have to lean in. We can't talk about Abraham without talking about the faith of Abraham. And I think the faith journey of Abraham starts pretty early in this chapter. Did you notice what he says in verse five? I'm gonna put it back up on the screen for us. It's a really big faithful moment here with Abraham. In verse five, he says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. The author of Hebrews sheds some light on Abraham's thinking here in Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. He tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise Isaac from the dead And so that might be true. That might be how Abraham's leaning into this is to go like, if I kill Isaac, God will raise him from the dead. Or he expects that God is going to move in a big way. And so he engages this process, not fearing that he's going to lose his son. It's Abraham's trust in God here with Isaac that lands him in the hall of faith In Hebrews. It's what enables him to be this primary example for Paul of what pure and active faith looks like. That said, Abraham's faith wasn't doubt free. There's a big narrative going on about Abraham, and we get a snippet shot about Abraham and Isaac and his faithfulness here. We can't forget about the whole story. We're going to put a pin in that one, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Um, His faith wasn't doubt free. I don't know if you noticed, but there was a lot of foreshadowing going on within this story about what God prepared to do in Jesus. It's kind of littered throughout this story. So let's look at how Jesus is foreshadowed within this story. If, if you hadn't caught on, there's this repeated language within the story of your son, Your only son. Now whenever Hebrews, in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, when you start seeing repetition, pay attention to repetition. That's a sign that whatever they're saying is important. Uh, Hebrew writers did not like to give a lot of adjectives or a lot of details. When you find these things, pay close attention to them. And then when they're repeated, hold on to them because they're important and central to the story. So this refrain happens, your only son. And then... um, hold on to that, and we're going to get there in a second. Uh, as he is blessing Abraham in Genesis, in 5, Genesis 12 and 15, um, God uses a bit of a buzzword in Genesis 15, 17, and 18 uh, that we've seen and encountered within our story already. So we're going to highlight that on the screen. I'm going to read it for us. But we've talked about this theme. And it jumps here in verses 17 and 18. I'll read it for us. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Do you notice I I voted offspring for us there. It's because guess what word could also be used? For offspring here. It's actually, I'm surprised that the translators went with offspring in this instance. Uh, Another way that we could translate this word is seed. And I think it's an intentional connection back to Genesis 3.15, having us to see that the big blessing of Abraham is that he will have a seed that will crush the serpent's head. There's an illusion here. There's a connection. Deep connection of Abraham's story in this promise back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's kind of as if God's leaning in and going, Yes, I know I haven't resolved the tension of Genesis 3.15. I have yet to fulfill that promise. But hey, look at what I'm doing with Abraham here. I have been faithful. I have leaned in. Every promise I've made for Abraham, I have made come true. So as you're waiting and you're feeling this tension as a reader about will there be a seed? Is the seed coming? You can take to the bank that there will be a seed. And I have a big plan, and it starts with Abraham. So there's a a theme reverberating here. Abraham will have a seed that reigns as a king. Abraham will have a seed that is our high priest. Through his seed, every nation, every person will be blessed. There are even echoes of phrases from the Abraham and Isaac story to the stories about Jesus. Remember the only son language. That's where this comes into place. Notice Genesis 22, 22, verse 2, where God tells Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now let's take that and compare that to when Jesus is baptized in Luke 3. And here's what it says. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. There's carryover of language here. Or compare it to John chapter 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his what? One and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's as if God were saying to Abraham, I won't let you sacrifice your son. I have a plan. I'm going to sacrifice my own son my only son, my promised son. In a really unique and interesting way, God invites Abraham into a space of tension that probably he can only relate to with God in this space of I have invited you to sacrifice your only son for me and I see that you're willing to do that so I'm gonna lean in hard to the promises that I've given you. However, we're not gonna go there with you. Just like I walked through that covenant, through that splitting of those animals on my own, taking all the risk and responsibility thereof, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do with my son. I won't make you do that. I will take on this penalty for myself. I will bear it. I will bear that love and I will be the faithful one in this covenant and commitment. And that's what happens in Jesus. Now this is the point of the sermon which usually takes a kid's Sunday school type of turn. Right. Then we start talking about, like, let's have faith like Abraham's faith. Let, have faith like Abraham's faith, his perfect faith. Now, let's talk about Abraham's faith for a second. Let's lean in. Let's, let's talk about the full gamut of Abraham's faith. I'm going to add a twist that we tend not to talk about. And it's in connection to our faith in terms of how we're to have faith in God, Abraham does something as a father I cannot imagine doing. I cannot imagine binding up one of my two sons, laying him on an altar and be willing to sacrifice him. I can't imagine that, I, I really cannot. But Abraham also has done a couple other things that I also can't imagine. Twice, he pawns his wife off like a sister, twice. Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. I can tell you, if I did that even once, I'm not married to my wife anymore. She's done with me, that's it, we're over. I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine. And then after God walks out this covenant, splits these two animals in half, carries the covenant through on his own self, you get into Genesis chapter 15 and what happens? He has a son. Is it Isaac? No, it's not. Is it with Sarah? No, it's not. He takes matters into his own hands and he goes, God, I hear you kinda and I kinda believe you, but I'm not sure. Maybe I need to think creatively for you. Let's see how I might be able to bring this son about. And he leans into it in that direction. And so one of the things I think we don't tend to appreciate in the story, the full story of Abraham, is that Abraham's faith was enough to get him into the hall of fame of faith. But that faith was not perfect. That was not a faith without doubt. That was not a faith without questions. That was not a faith without insecurity. So here's here's the deal. It seems that it's okay to have an up and down journey regarding our faith. It seems to be okay. It seems to be okay to have big questions about God. It seems to be okay to have doubts about God. It seems to be communicated into this story, at least for me, that God's love is big enough to handle the questions it seems to me like God's love is big enough to handle my own insecurities about what's going on. It seems as though God's faith or God's love is big enough to handle when I'm having a really bad day and I'm not sure about how all of this stuff comes together and I'm not sure you're really with me here, God. It seems to me that this, what this story communicates is a love so profound and so big that it is not entirely reliant on me having a perfect faith. And that's what's communicated to me in the story of Abraham and the way that Abraham gets lifted up as an example of what quality faith looks like in the New Testament is that it's okay to walk through hard things in life and have questions. It's okay to walk through some hard things in life and have doubt. Because here's the deal. God's love is big enough. His shoulders are are broad enough. He loves you enough to step, to step into the gap just like he stepped into the gap of those animals and to say, "I am carrying this burden for you. I've got this. I hear you in your questions. I hear you in your frustrations. I hear you in the bad diagnosis. I hear you in the loss of the family member. I hear you in the depths of your soul and the darkest of night when you have deep, hard, profound questions." and you doubt my goodness, I hear you, I'm here for you, and I am big enough for you, amen? That's good news. That's why I love the story of Abraham. It teaches me what faith looks like. Faith is a journey as we walk hand in hand with God that is complete with bumps and hiccups and confusion and a God that's willing to walk us through all of those obstacles in life. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your love and your faithfulness. A love that is big enough to handle the questions. A love that is big enough to handle the doubt. A love that steps into the gap of our confusion. We thank you that you demonstrate to us what it really means to be a good father. And that on our worst and hardest day, we can lean into you. And even when we run away from you, we know you're still there. Because your reckless love pursues us in a way that appears reckless to us, but is planned and thoughtful and careful and broad Lord, we stand in awe of you. Lord, increase our faith as we journey with you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram.